Hello there, and welcome back to Music Speaks. It felt like we took a little hiatus, but we didn't. But we're back with Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts. My name is Sean Kunis, and you know my friend Hunter Sagona in his classic white t-shirt and glasses. Hunter and I believe that there are many people that have a playlist that makes their lives unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our future guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Here is the quote of the day. The bamboo that bends is stronger than the oak that resists, which is a Japanese proverb. And today we will explore the music of Joe Hisashi, his Studio Ghibli film music. Joe Hisashi is a Japanese composer and music director and the most acclaimed film composer in Japan. It has also been noted that he is successful with his minimal, electronic, and classical music. We should discuss his music because people have recognized him as the John Williams of Japanese film music. I'm not sure how to feel that, feel about that, but he is a very successful writer and composer, and he is one of the greatest of our time. His name is Mamoru Fujisawa, but Quincy Jones gave him the name Kushi, or Hisashi Jones, to then Joe Hisashi. All right. So, Sean, where have you heard his music? Well, as I mentioned in the intro, I have heard his music in Studio Ghibli films and these anime, and they add some perfect sound for these incredibly moving movies. How uh, how aware were you of, of his music that he scored all these various films? Did you know they were all by relative, like roughly one person? You know, I did it right away, but then as soon as I found out that I, I liked one of them, it just made sense that I liked all of them because he wrote all of these different kinds of music, and you know, and as soon as I watched a bunch of his films, I just felt like it was worth discussing because he's a great composer. And as we were talking last night how he just understands musical moments in movies uh -huh. and able to really zoom in and really get the feeling of those moments and those really touching movies or in the instance of like really tense moments, he's able to really bring that forward in this movie. Uh -huh. And while we're, while we're, we're talking about his music and while people listen to his music, um, what's something we should key on? What's something we should key in on uh, something that we want to talk about in this podcast? Sure, I think it's really important to discuss how this makes us feel. So in order to do that, I think it's really important for us to discuss these compositional techniques that we listen to and what we uh -huh. hear from these great recordings. Um, and it's also how, how he engages the feelings of the audience and how does it make us relate to these unrelatable characters uh -huh. who are crazy at the time of talking about like a giant squirrel mouse. <laughs> you know, in Totoro, but I'm excited to try to find relation at extreme of to then re relating it to just daily life of just love and passion and feeling lost or trying to just be there for someone you love. And I think he just does it perfectly and, and, and sets it really great. So I'm excited to talk about it with you today. All right. So if that's the case, then we should move on to the first piece, which is Path of the Wind from the movie My Neighbor Totoro from 1988. That's right. That's sure. Let's let's go right into it, which is The Path of the Wind. 
written for my neighbor Totoro, as you mentioned, in 1988, uh, formed by the Northwestern University and specifically the Renaissance Music Society Orchestra, and James Chang as conductor. Um, Hunter, some interesting facts, if you would like uh, sure. to, to to talk about right away. Um, the box office flop and was initially rejected by the studio for its strange and obscure references. Really? Um, yeah, interestingly enough. And funny enough, did you know that the word Totoro is mispronounced for the word troll in Japanese? I did read that, yes. Yeah, in, in my notes. Yeah, I'm sure, of course. Um, also, have you also noticed that Something that works is that it always starts with very soft piano. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I talked to someone who really watches anime, and I said to him, isn't it interesting that all these movies start this way? And he's like, well, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's almost like a great compositional tool where it sort of sets the scene. It doesn't yeah. necessarily give us the the um the grand gestures of a of a you know a grand movie does but it gives us the idea of of what something would sound like and so in this sort of vein i think he does a really great job of really setting this really quietly the piano and then i noticed something interesting about how i like that when he writes with piano then the action begins between the voices and we get slow versus fast. And I think that's something that's really cool in music is when you have these slow motives, but then you have these, like, I think the motive was like, ba -da -da -dee -da, and then it would take a step down. -da -da -dee -da -da, and then you have these strings that would go, they would they sort of feel like the wind is moving. And in the movie, you can sort of feel the wind sort of really making a really big impact and, in the nature, and I think it's really important to mention that in these Studio Ghibli movies, nature is always a priority to talk about or talking about pollution mm -hmm. because that's an issue that they want to address right away to children. I mean, the children who watch these movies should know that pollution's bad for the environment. Right. So it's just something to think about. But I'm getting a little off course, but I think it's interesting that right away we get these like mixed feelings in this kind of like, um, soap opera kind of like start to this <laughs> this uh this piece what did what did you think yeah i noted right at the beginning um the flute has this uh the flute has this part that to me seemed to mimic the lightness of of wind mm. which we hear we see in the title um right mm. from the top of the piece which real like mm -hmm. you said sets the mood it sets the tone and it is it's right. soft you yeah. know it's not like a big fanfare um, mm -hmm. About a minute twenty into the piece, uh, you know this particular mm -hmm. recording that we watched. Sure, um, for sure. I love that the brass has this very lilting supporting part. It, it's it really keeps the light feel of the piece, but yeah. it's brass, so you know it adds a little mm -hmm. more power to it. You know, a little more oomph. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and then when it when it really comes in, you know, when you have all the parts added it's very lush, you know what I mean? It, mm -hmm. The, the yeah. full orchestra really, I think, exemplifies the large scope of Ghibli films because while there is an intimacy to the themes of it, which we said with like the piano mm -hmm. and the flutes, there is a vast mm -hmm. scope, you know what I mean? It's always it's right. very yeah. large in that sense. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. that 
that's something right. definitely worth um right worth yeah. noting in the music uh-huh and interestingly enough i i find that your connection to this next statement that i'm going to say is sort of similar where we talked about a hymn like quality uh -huh. and I, I think most musicians are sort of able to connect to writing that way because it's simple and easy and i think we understand that and it follows a lot of sequences and i think as we go along it'll be very apparent that we'll find these compositional techniques in his music that he uses sequences in his music yeah following line and following uh sort of status in that way and you know it, it it's it sets the scene so well and it almost if you listen to it and you close your eyes it just it really calms the mind and it's just very that kind so. of music that just it, it just really is able to just sort of go from one thing of sort of being a little turbulent to sort of being a little calm you know and i think that hisashi does a really great job of just kind of taking a look at kind of exactly what these characters are going through which is they're moving their mother's sick you know and they're trying to deal with a lot of these emotions of trying to take care of themselves but then they meet this character and it just kind of changes their lives you know and it, yeah. it brings out a really great moment with all of them you know and it's it's pretty cool um yeah and, and something that I really I really enjoy is is talking about the evolution of themes and music and how it can start from one thing and then become another thing and mm -hmm. then it can, we'll go back to that original idea or maybe it can continue that 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 ongoing idea but I think something that we'll also notice in his music is how he goes from one idea to a bigger developing one idea to a smaller idea and I love those those trains of thought within his music you can actually watch and see and say wow he's going from here to there to there and it's almost like reading a book because it, uh -huh. then it makes sense you know sometimes composers have a have a bad tendency of um of kind of making quick transitions to s slower aspects of music like i don't want to throw a name around because i'll probably get in trouble but tchaikovsky is kind uh -huh. of the culprit of that where he goes from oh, yeah, he's gonna rise fast. from the grave and yell at you <laughs> he's gonna slap me i know He's going to go from really fast to sort of a slow transition into slow. But Hasashi, he does a really great job of setting the scene, maybe developing the scene a little more with some compositional sequences and development and ideas, and then to the really impactful stuff. And then he leaves you with the opening theme to kind of kind of tug on your heartstrings. And they edit, and you can, I feel like in a way, it's almost like a storybook. You can watch it go along, and it makes a lot of sense. Your yeah. thoughts on that? What do you think? I mean, I think it's definitely true because the the uh -huh. building aspect of it is really crucial because I think that's what sort of makes this is gonna sound weird, but I mean I think you'll know what I'm what I'm saying. It starts like a seed, right? The beginning sure. it, it opens, it starts like a seed and builds and builds uh -huh. as it's it's sure. almost like growing in the pit of your stomach and it it builds higher and higher. Uh -huh. But a lot of this music that he writes. It, it doesn't completely release, you know what I mean? Mm, it, it, it maintains yeah. a level of restraint, which makes you sort of uh, grasp for more of it, but it, it, it leaves you wanting, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that seed grows, so. grows, grows, reaches a big point, but doesn't completely flourish, which is beautiful in its own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think to most audience members who are obviously small, 
they'll also be able to connect to the music too because they'll be able to see the growth of the characters and the growth of kind of seeing how the music is laying out in front of their eyes and i think that's actually kind of cool because i think hasashi is not only speaking to the adults in the room hasashi is really speaking to the children in the room i feel like there's a really great area for great composers who were able to do something like that and i think that that is something that hasashi is really known for in this music uh-huh. uh something else i wrote was it's repetitive which which makes sense as i think that really sort of ties a lot of these ideas together and i think i think back to your you know how we had that whole frederick um discussion the other the other day about how his music doesn't end uh-huh. and how it makes us feel but i don't really think this music actually ends no or i don't it didn't, it didn't feel like it ended yeah what did you think i i and i think that's part of what we said before which is that it mm-hmm. leaves you with this sense of like is the adventure over you know what i mean like yeah. it, could uh-huh. it is it going to happen again did it really even happen at all and i know that's a theme yeah. we'll talk about a little bit later with one of the other ones um mm-hmm. but sort of leaves that wistful childness like or childlikeness mm-hmm. i think um uh-huh. and the the incomplete i don't want to say incompletion like music is incomplete but the where it doesn't finish i think yeah. is representative of a lot of that um almost almost nostalgia which again is a it's a huge theme i think in his music Right, yeah, and I, I think that that is something that we can really connect to. And my final question with this whole segment is, is he successful in this composition? Does he get what he wants across? I think so. I think he does I in, in so almost too. every piece. Yeah, I think so too. And I think he really is able to connect to something that will really kind of hone in a lot of these individual compositions, which is nature. Mm-hmm. Kind of showing people that nature isn't as scary as people present it to be or right. as you know the whole like put up another parking lot no you <laughs> don't need that we can just live with the wonderful you know areas that we have and not have to feel like we have to close ourselves off for for anything but i think it's really beautiful that he sends this this message and connects with the director on that similar message through the music so yeah, I know that you had told me in a text that you liked Kiki's delivery service, which was written in 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, this recording is conducted by the Joe Hisashi, yeah, and it was Ghibli's first successful movie, offcoming the uh, box office drama of My Neighbor Totoro. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna talk about uh, my Kiki's delivery service. But Hunter, let me ask you this: that did you know that? The town that moved that Kiki moves to is Stockholm. Really? Yeah, she moves to Stockholm. I did and, not know that. And did you also know that the movie is so successful that they ter- they turned it into a live action movie and a stage play? I definitely did not know that. Well, that is right. Those are two true facts about this movie. <laughs> and is there going to be a lie about the movie? No, there's no lie. There's only two <laughs> truths. I'm kidding. No, that's right. That's exactly what I'm doing. Um, I love the intro to this section. It is so uh-huh. intense, and it gets your attention right away. What are your thoughts on that? On this intro, it kind of yeah, like it, sweeps you off, sweeps you off your feet metaphorically. It does, and you know, and given the movie, you know, she's riding a broom. I think that that's uh, uh, a good that metaphor. Makes a lot of sense. Um, right, yeah. 
so and, and I, I even wrote in my uh, in my notes as I'm here wiping my mm. eye because I'm dying with something. Um, <laughs> I think the the broomstick <laughs> flying is exemplified yeah. by the grand sweeping string part because mm. I, you know we see it it comes back at the end when the when the broomstick returns um, or rather the, the flight of it returns. And I always got the sense that like it's definitely minor key. But mm -hmm. again, they give you like the sense of like major at times or, you know, and I always get the feeling like, is it minor because she's a witch and, and that's mm -hmm. like their, their little nod to it. Like she's clearly not a bad guy. Sure. She's the, the heroine of the story, but sure, yeah. they throw that in there maybe as a little bit of a symbolic representation of like, it can be a pleasant sounding theme, but it's minor because, you know, witch and, and magic and stuff, <laughs> but sure. That's the first thing that that sort of came to my mind. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny about wizards and witches in movies. You never see them actually do magic, except for the sorcerer and the stone. Then otherwise you do see magic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You do see some magic. Um, what else did I say? You know, what is a compositional technique that we can draw from the previous listening that we've also talked about in this piece too? Um, well, actually, now that I think about it, we didn't talk about it in the previous one, but I had it in my notes and I just wound up never saying it. Um, okay. there are some real, he does some really beautiful chromaticisms throughout his works, mm. oh, which sure, really yeah. adds some coloration to the piece as if it weren't colorful enough, but it, it adds just a little something extra. And I love the sound of like an entire orchestra descending and ascending in chromaticisms, um, mm -hmm. which I think is just, it's, it's very cool. Right. Very cool. And I feel like I really just enjoyed this sort of sense of chromaticism because it's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's very alluring and it's different and it, it's, it's almost accessible. It feels mm -hmm. accessible. You know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's non-accessible because sometimes when you listen to some other film music, John Williams might add in a chromatic look that you're like, huh? But it, it makes sense in the moment for Hisashi because he writes it so well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I like that too. But I, I was going to say to answer my own question, uh, sequences. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I sequences, feel like he uses yeah. that in most of his pieces because mm -hmm. it, uh, it. You mentioned accessibility. Once someone's yes. heard a theme and you start playing them in sequence, then not that it makes it predictable in a bad way, but audiences I think like a sense of predictability when hearing music it makes them almost feel like they're a part of it uh-huh you know what i mean so that i could definitely sure. i could definitely see that being a, a reason why he puts it yeah. in yeah you know i i did a little research on that and he it did say that he was inspired by bach and mozart and beethoven right really? i think yeah i think so and and a lot of those composers as we as we've as we've done six of them with bach mm -hmm. We've, we've come to discuss about sequences and the relationship with scales. Um, mm -hmm. And I think almost in a way, Hasashi does the same thing where he kind of says, this works. And the, the same thing down, down a step still works. Like my favorite, you know, my favorite line of Kiki's is, bum, 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 bum. You know, it's just, yeah. it's bum, 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 bum. You know, it just, it's, it's very sequential. It's really easy, and it's hummable. 
you yes. know and i think that that's something that you should kind of aim for as a composer and Hisashi just mails it on the head i think a lot um, of the music for this section in accordance with what you said hummable singable mm -hmm. um it's very, very childlike. It's very whimsical, which is obviously important yeah, so. given that the main character is in fact mm -hmm. a kid. Um, right. And so it's a, it's a sort of a, a representation of her. Yes. Yeah. And as it goes on, as we were talking about with evolution, mm -hmm. it then turns to dance. And then very the exciting so. dancey turns into really proud brass accents and it's so amazing and it's just so moving yeah and then right at the end it's just it's sad and it's lamenting but then so sweeping um and i wrote the chord is heart-wrenching so well done and so moving and so well orchestrated and i wrote sequences for days haha -ha. mm -hmm. very true sequences very true indeed. for days <laughs> I also yeah no love... I, I, I oh go ahead yeah go ahead no 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 go ahead no I was gonna say in that that final third section it which is gorgeous uh -huh. um you know you mentioned it's it's mm -hmm. so sad um mm -hmm. which I, I think you know in the movie you know she does lose her powers and uh -huh. she can't quite figure out why and they have this great clarinet solo in this the suite mm -hmm. that they play um which you know we had talked about with a couple other guests how the clarinet is capable of emoting very well um and it really it i i think it plays this very heartbreaking solo mm -hmm. just in a way that really makes you feel it which is funny because at the end of the the piece the final section um mm -hmm. it's obviously um it, it, it's joyous in a way, right? Because it, it's representing the return of her powers and, and she gets it back. And yet there is still a sadness to it. Mm -hmm. So I can't help but wonder, is it like, you know, I always get the sense that the, in the movie, because this movie, I, I, I remember this movie vividly. It was always on on mm -hmm. Halloween when we were young. Um, oh, sure. And they always, they always played it on Cartoon Network. Um, but then mm -hmm. it was like gone all of a sudden. Yeah. And they, they mm -hmm. just stopped playing it. But anyway, my point being is that when she gets her powers back, there always was this sort mm -hmm. of sense of sadness to me, and I and I wasn't sure why at the time because you know you're a kid, but now I think about it and thinking about the music of that particular mm. section, yeah, it, you know, getting back her powers was there a cost to it? You know what I mean? Like mm. she couldn't rely on her childlike innocence and belief in her powers; she had to find something else to believe in, sure. and sure. that means like you know you're not you're not necessarily a kid anymore, so it's maybe not as happy. And I think it's really exemplified well in the theme. Right. Yeah, I, exactly. I think it's really cool that you can see that symbolism in the music and you can reference how she's actually feeling at the time. Uh -huh. And as we're moving towards the end of the song, uh, we get to a violin solo, which is expressive. However, we talk about this with Bach. It uses scales. Uh -huh. The basic of this expressive violin solo is scales now where which composer have we talked about that uses scales i wonder i hmm, wonder scratching scratching my very long chin of you know <laughs> uh, hey, no kid no it's bach i mean of course that comes back to that comment about how he really enjoys using scales and that's one of those compositional techniques that's just rolls off the tongue and for jazz musicians scales is kind of almost everything Cause it's just, and I almost feel like with, you know, the next song we're going to talk about, 
uh, with Porco Rosso, I almost feel like he <laughs> we, we can hear some of his some of his jazz influence in his oh, music. Oh, definitely. Which is really cool. And I think those sequences come from a place of understanding jazz harmony, which Hisashi is really good at. And I think that's something that definitely um, feels really good. And then here's what I wrote. And then it just ends. It just whoosh. Yep. And then I write, there's no wishful thinking. And it feels like a cracked Fabergé egg, as I like to mention these Fabergé eggs. A in, cracked in Fabergé egg. That's quite a cracked Fabergé. I know. Pretty hard to watch. You know, and then... Although I'm a sucker for really good cadences, that mm -hmm. felt right. You know, it felt I right. Think it felt so, right. Yeah. That, you know, and and, and you know, it might feel like oh, it doesn't end, you know, on tonic, obviously, but it just adds that sleeping motion, which then relates back to the character of Kiki, which is a witch and she's flying with her broom. Right. And I think the relationship of her between her and her broom is almost kind of really important in this in this movie because she struggles with becoming a witch. And then as she becomes to learn more things about being in which she doesn't like it, and then as she goes into it more, she understands that she can do more good than bad with her life. Right. And she wants to do that with her life, you know. So, which is really cool. And I do recommend our friends who are listening right now to check out My Neighbor Totoro, which was made in 1988. And 1989 was Kiki's Delivery Service, which is a really great movie. Please check them out now. Oh, I will show them to you personally on my TV. Um, Hunter, uh -huh. we're going to take a break. All right. Um, but let's see which, uh, which uh, sponsor segment we have to read this time. Oh, right. Take a break <laughs> sponsored by Anchor. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways out to reach out to us. And you will find our social media and ways that you contribute to said podcast as said as perfectly as our friend Hunter usually does. Um, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some Porco Rosso, so don't go away. Okay, and we're back, and we're going to talk about some Porco Rosso, which was made in the year of our Lord, 1992, with the Porco Rosso Orchestra. Um, and as I was mentioning to you during the break, Hunter, um, one of the main characters, Porco Rosso, uh -huh. is Michael Keaton in the English dub of this movie. Yeah. So if I, if I saw him in person, I would walk up to him and say, I loved your work in Poco Rosso and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He's a great actor. and I love him in Baz Batman and as the vulture, and he's a pretty damn good actor. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, this was actually based, possibly based on a real person, although the pilot turning into a pig is kind of a stretch. Um <laughs> Although it is interesting because of his last name, because it actually is based off of Ensign Charles Hamman. 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 Interestingly enough, interesting enough. Sounds like a super and name. in in the show, uh, he flew in the movie. He flew a Maki M5 during World War One and won the Medal of Honor for rescuing a pilot who was shot down. Ah. And I went into thinking one thing about this movie. Because I saw it and I was like, oh, it looks kind of silly. And then I watched it. And I think this is one of my favorites on this list, including really? uh, Totoro and uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. But this one's one of my favorites because having also having Joe Hisashi isn't you know so bad either. <laughs> um, but the movie itself is really fun to watch. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but interestingly enough, Hunter, let's wild guess. What instrument does Joe Hisashi start with? 
I'm going to take a wild guess, and even though I've already listened to it, so let's say piano. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Piano, and a sort of continuing from uh, Kiki's delivering service, we have this sweep. motion I, I i love this movie and and something i find really hilarious about this movie is just how, how um how classy he is although he's a pig <laughs> and I, I love that and you get this sort of really um classy italian jazz you know mm -hmm. and i don't really you don't really think about it as that but it's quite successful and very interesting um you know what are your thoughts on that I, you know, the first thing I noted after mm -hmm. I got over the fact that he was a pig um, <laughs> was that we have, like you said, this great chromatic jazz opening, and you underneath uh -huh. it have this really spacious underscore, um, and it really gives a definite, like, romantic atmosphere for, mm -hmm. as the undertone for the film with those yeah. sweeping strings, which is really period yeah. for this for this time, right? Movies that are about World War One, there's always, or and even World War Two sometimes, there were always mm -hmm. like this this subplots of romance. So the hero who was high flying also was this uh -huh. like dashing lover, which also makes it kind of funny because he's <laughs> like you know, Ibor, a he's pig. a pig, a pig, yeah. Uh -huh. So I, I yeah. thought that was really well done. And it's hard to imagine that this is also a kids movie. Well, yeah, that's a strange thought. This is. That, that's kind of a stretch too and then and, and the next one we're going to talk about too is, is kind of a stretch with kid movies as well mm -hmm. um well uh, what but, i'll say is movies from other mm -hmm. countries mm -hmm. a lot of them mm -hmm. are a lot of them that are like quote unquote family friendly uh -huh. are not really family friendly for here <laughs> in the united states oh sure um, yeah. italy has some uh -huh. very risque films that you would not think you'd want kids to watch but for them, it's a cultural thing, so they, they don't mm -hmm. think of it the same way. Maybe in Japan it's the same way, based on what we know about this film and the next one. Right, sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, when you listen to this piece, it's it just feels like a uh, um, high-class lounge. You know? Oh my god, I had the exact same note on my yeah, paper. We, you know, great minds think alike, my friend. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's interesting that it talks about that. And yet, you know, as I was mentioning earlier with, with Totoro, with the, the, the nature aspect, it just also then plays along really well with the Italian countryside in this movie. Very much so. Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, in my note, it, it's so funny you say that I had uh, that yeah. at about two uh -huh. minutes in, it becomes very much like lounge music, which, by the way, I love. Um, but mm. that kind of, that style of music was very much associated with air travel. I don't know why, but it, it became really popular on flights. And this 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 idea of almost like if you could picture it, 1960s, even though this is going obviously farther back, if you picture like <laughs> 1960s flight attendant uh, with lounge music playing and, and men dressed very well, that was very much an image that Italy in particular really, really liked to employ. So I think mm. um, Hisashi really captured the image of like, because I know a lot of the movie is about Milan, which is obviously Northern mm. Italy, sure, really yeah. captures that imagery. Yeah, yeah, I think it does a really great job of 
with with that and as we were talking about with these sort of snap shots of each you know the evolution of this is really fascinating and then as you know something that we're going to mention later on as you alluded to earlier which is the chromatic passing tones uh -huh. of the coloring of the melody and I th we're going to hear that more in spirited away I'm sure than uh -huh. uh, some more some more melodies we're going to talk about, um, but this chromaticism starts to become more of a thing with within his music as you were talking about earlier. But we can hear that in this, and I think it alludes to just this really great compositional tool of transition. And it, it doesn't really feel like it just it, it transitions very slowly, and then it goes back to that same exact melody because it's sort of like a it's sort of like a break in a way. And I I almost feel that as like a um, Right at the end of a tune, when you're, you're playing a jazz tune, you have the ending chord, but then you have like five, you know, two, five, and then that goes back to the one of the head. And I feel like those chromatic passing tones almost act as the end of the tune, leading us back to the beginning of the tune, which then sets up probably one of my favorite parts of this, um, this segment that we got to listen to with the Porco Rosso Orchestra, which is the... Um, which is the jazz background of Hisashi, uh -huh. which I think is very diverse and I think it's very interesting. And then when the drums come in with the lead in, it comes back to this sort of slow jazz background. And then it sort of comes in with then, surprisingly enough, I, I, I had watched this movie before and then it reminded me of something. And then as soon as I thought of that, the trumpet came in with this yeah. really great improv, sort of soloing, high class feeling of kind of like, you know, I and I, I loved that with this music. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you and, about the trumpet solo. Since we had a clarinet uh -huh. solo in the last one, what did you think about <laughs> yeah. the trumpet solo? I, you know, it was, I think, I think that um, uh, studio musicians are really good at understanding moments in music. Yeah. Obviously, the composer says, do it here. <laughs> Don't do anything here. But <laughs> it, it's it's almost perfect where like, it's very showy initially and then it just kind of takes away from the kind of like slow aspect of of the song so we have this kind of high fast playing and then we go to this sort of very slow kind of like playing and then the trumpet continues to go and i almost feel like as the trumpet's continuing it then kind of evolves in this really great jazz feeling of kind of like you know uh, it starts very flashy for the trumpet and then it goes and sort of like it continues, but it's softer and the emphasis returns to the strings. We were playing this kind of luscious, you know, high fluting sort of feeling of a melody. And I, I really do like that kind of like that balance. And like I said, the, the chart itself just feels like a whole tune and it just repeats itself over and over and over again. Uh -huh. But then at the end of those phrases, it adds in those, those chromatic passing tones, as you were mentioning, and I and in all caps I wrote those leading tones, <laughs> you know. And the effect of this is great, and the improv is so genuine and swinging, and it feels so relaxed. And yet the trumpet is kind of all over the place, you know. And it and it feels like there's a lot happening, but it's almost like we're Totoro, where you have like the slow stuff, and you have the high level stuff, you know, on top of it. Yeah. And so the obviously the fast stuff kind of comes out over the slow stuff, and so. It's it's kind of interesting. We find this this compositional technique in his music because you have this slow versus fast, right? 
and then the fast comes in, you know, and then the, the fast turns into slow and then the emphasis becomes slow, you know, it, it almost feels like that's exactly what he's going for. And I feel like this is a great small composition that he wrote for this movie. Yeah. And then just like a lot of his pieces, um, or so far, all of them, it, it actually, no, not like all of them, you know, the other pieces have ended on a very un, uh, unsettling, unfinished note. This piece doesn't sure. actually end. It just fades out. So yeah, it does. Yeah. To me, that is a great way of ending the piece because it almost seems like the plane flying off in the distance. Yeah, sure. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just fading away as it goes. Right. And it, it, it doesn't feel like I wrote like the same thing. I mean, we get a finally, I wrote finally resolution closure, and, uh, closure. And we get that. Um, and I love that. I wrote that as the, we get to this dying away motion, as you mentioned, there's just a really nice. And usually when you're writing for strings in this setting of like, or sort of like a jazz sort of like, uh, setting, you know, like a Clifford Brown and string sort of thing. It's just kind of very, it's very sweeping and it's usually high, you know, high playing. Uh, the violin's not really doing that much, but it's just kind of very relaxing and very slow and kind of nice to listen. And it just kind of slowly resolves. Mm -hmm. um, however, we can't say the same thing about this next one because uh, <laughs> <laughs> this one is pretty dark itself. No um, kidding. No kidding at all. Um, this next one is from the Princess Mononoke, which is featured in the Princess Mononoke suite. And this has Joe Hisashi conducting in this video. Uh, and the movie was uh, debuted in 1997, the year of our Lord. And Hunter, again, I love that I'm able to look at these facts and say, check it out. So let's look at some more facts. Sure. Which is... So I wrote that Ghibli films also do a great job of describing war as a detriment to society. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that does a really good job of reflecting hurting animals and it adds to pollution and it harms the environment and the people around, you know. And I think it, it almost feels like Studio Ghibli is wanting to say something here. Like it. Uh -huh. It is obviously a departure from Poker Rosso. Yes, big time. As 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 we might say, um, and this movie came out in 1997, and I think at this time a lot of eyes were maybe on the beginning of some wars in the Middle East or some sort of tension around there, and I think that that could have been definitely a proponent for this movie. Because then we start talking about pollution and we start talking about, you know, human life versus soldier versus how much you're willing to really hurt some. It is definitely a kid's movie. However, it feels like a protest movie to those who watch it and understand the themes of the movie um and however this movie was inspired by westerns uh -huh. and this movie was supposed to be the director miyazaki of um studio ghibli's last film and you know i went into this movie thinking oh it's okay 
you know, it's not his head got cut off. And I was like, okay, this is not like a regular Studio Ghibli movie I've ever seen. <laughs> so I think I think that's that's going to add to a lot of our conversation. And however, um, it shattered box office records yeah. in Japan. Shattered. It won Best Picture for the Japanese Oscars and inspired a Canadian music video, which take it as you will, you know, with Canadians and all. Um, so, Hunter, um, I think we might have talked about this with percussion and maybe with Dan about the heartbeat mm. and, and the sound of this large drum sort of beating very slowly in the beginning of this piece. Um, and it, it just feels like it's just growing. And I believe, um, uh, folks, as much as I, I love to keep your spirits kind of high during this podcast, this is kind of a very serious movie. Um, so it does start very mournful. And as, as we were talking earlier about the way Hisashi makes these movies, it's just... It's it's so perfect, and you can sort of follow along with how he presents each individual theme, and the evolution of each theme is beautiful. Um, I'm sure our listeners is tired of me talking. Hunter, why don't you let me know what you're thinking about this intro with this percussion and slow, mournful sounds in the beginning of this piece? Well, you know, the, the movie starts, and it's already... And, uh, you know, the, the sense of war is already abounding. So mm -hmm. I feel like it's a break in the, in the current action to, um, it's a break to take a moment and reflect on the death and destruction that's already happened before the next round starts again, right? And the, the drum, I almost feel like, you know how when it's really quiet and you can feel, and, and like you can feel your own pulse, So right. I think that is, that's sort of the idea here is in the silence before and after the conflict sure. uh, or before and after conflict, it's almost like you, mm -hmm. you, you feel your own pulse, you hear your own heartbeat. It allows you mm -hmm. to reflect before whatever comes next. And it's very clear from right off the bat, this is not going to be like his other scores. This is not like a <laughs> sweeping melodic score. It, it, it's no. very dark. It's very ominous. Does yeah. there's... Mm -hmm. I, I hesitate to say there's no hope in the score, but they really yeah. toy with the fact that uh, the the world is is not um, is not always ideal, right? Which is a a, a sense that you get through a lot of his films um, and mm. the the music, but this one in particular really plays on that. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really cool that he he just kind of plays with those emotions, and uh, it's it's a finally like I wrote in my notes, it's a it's a dark horse where we really don't really get to see the really sort of. I mean, we really get to hear some minimalistic elements in his music from other movies, but this is his first movie where he's able to sort of play with creative expectations, you know, and I feel like that's kind of cool for him as an artist because i think he's really able to sort of take advantage of these sort of like crazy dangerous moments <laughs> and if you can if you can let me go back to the right and i think there's a there's a lot in this piece before we get there but i want to mention quickly about the the bass drum um 
there's a connection to a lot of works with with bass drum that sort of resembles a heartbeat mm -hmm. right with um death and transfiguration with the strauss one as we were talking about how we sort of play along with this boom boom you know and it, it's rhythmic and it almost feels like our hearts are sort of sort of kind of like very slow down to a point where we're kind of expecting something really big and uh in a scary movie that kind of allows for a shock value yeah you know in music if we're in music i think that's a really great moment for us to kind of take a step back and say okay all right i'm looking toward the the idea of what's happening and then bam it, we then sort of change our expectations of what's happening and I think then we can really understand how to listen to them and how we can sort of anticipate the audience to feel about this piece. Uh -huh. So interestingly enough, I like that, you know, as we continue in the movie that we, we add in these moments of danger and we can hear them again through the percussion. Do you have anything to say about that? Well, you know, the, percussion it, it it builds up and then fades out builds up fades but and there's mm -hmm. one part in it and it, more towards the the end of the piece where the there's heavy percussion movement but there's strings that are going up and down underneath mm -hmm. and i really yeah. feel like that uh that not motive but mm -hmm. i don't know exactly what you'd call it that that passage Mm -hmm. is uh how do i want to say this it, it's mm -hmm. not symbolic but it i guess so i guess that does make it a motive it it shows up a couple of times and i almost feel like the the war aspect of this is connected to the um it's connected to the heartbeat idea you know what i mean it in war your you know your blood is racing it it, it keeps your Keeps you on your toes just like the the drum beat does in this particular piece but mm -hmm, also might mm -hmm. be symbolic of the people in the the in the movie right i mean they seem to be very sure. accustomed to this this war like it's not surprising to them they don't want to do it obviously but yeah so life you know that that mixture of like life and war it's the only thing that they know or they're that they're used mm -hmm. to and then the, yeah. the strings which in his other pieces have represented freedom are almost like yeah. at war with it. So I, mm. I you know, a lot yeah. of ways that they're it, used. And, and something interesting about that is how then we start to get like some really dangerous sounds in the orchestra. Yeah. Um, and I feel like one of my favorite moments in the movie that's illustrated by the music is the octaves and the brass picking creatures who are destructing the chaos and creating all this really intense, you know, feelings and one of my favorite um creatures is keith david's uh character as he plays the hog this really huge just huge animal that is sort of like be warned human about the blah 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 <laughs> and it just it, 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 it you know and i love that you know that we get this kind of like this big figure and it's just like kind of very dangerous and kind of like kind of like you know you know, you're, 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 this is the only chance that you have to escape. Do it now, you know, before hell comes down on you, you know? And yeah, uh, it's, it's a very interesting sense of just danger, you know, it's just kind of like really, you know, 
kind of all over the place and um just like just like a lot of these other movies we then kind of return to an individual uh violin and piano which kind of has its own like anthem theme to the to sort of like play around with the sort of feeling of the characters and how they're kind of you know for good you know and and then one of my favorite moments is you know it, it has this sort of aching feeling and then joe comes back to the piano and then adds to this sort of feeling and i love watching him conduct and then go to the piano and play along with the with the violinist and i think it adds just really like this this zoomed in version of exactly what's happening because you have this huge orchestra and then it just zooms down to piano and violin which is really cool and i think that that really makes a really great impression on this this group uh -huh. um and i wrote down that it, it sort of has this nature's wind effect just kind of again like totoro's theme and very slow and sweeping and it kind of makes you almost ease into the next you know section and then bam it hits you and you're like ah you know because you're wanting to listen to some something soft but it's always edgy and i think that that's a good way however, of however yeah, and I think that with with this music, it, it is so incredibly um, just wonderful and just so expressive. And I'm I'm so happy to to showcase this music because I feel like it just I feel like in a way um, he really did his homework with like with like scary animes and like really intense war <laughs> scenes. Because I I've listened to some soundtracks for because I've I've been just in the room with uh, my friends and they listen to like they really enjoy like for example Attack on Titan mm -hmm. and they understand just now. really really exactly yeah and it's a really great intense scene and when I think about that I think about Princess Mononoke because Princess Mononoke has this raw energy that mm -hmm. just is unleashed and we haven't heard that before with. Unfortunately, with with Joe Hisashi, because he's he's kind of playing around with all these different kinds of ideas, and then he says, and then the director Miyazaki comes to him and says, "This is not a kids' movie. This is going to be one of these crazy like <laughs> uh, fight to death movies." And I think that you're going to do a great job of showcasing dangerous beasts and animals, and and you know, before we move on to this to the you know the next uh, uh, piece. Is that right? Or no, we're going to take a break. But Hunter, is there anything else that you would like to say before we take a break? Uh, not that I could think of about this. Only thing is, obviously, the crux of the piece, I think, is dissonance. So dissonance, it's, it's yeah. much more dissonant than the other pieces that he's sure, done so yeah. far, which only adds to that mm -hmm. sort of chaotic element that's a part of yeah. the movie. Right. And it's it's almost abrasive at, at times, where mm -hmm. you're kind of like, ugh. But it also adds to the, the death in the movie, because there's a a lot of people get their heads cut off. It's pretty graphic. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, pretty graphic in this movie. Uh, you know, if if you have a kid at home and you're wondering, oh, should I show them Princess Mononoke? No, but do not be deceived by the title. If, yeah, if you were in high school and you are curious about Studio Ghibli movies before the 2000s, I would definitely recommend this movie. Hunter, what do we have to do now? Oh, we got to do another break, sponsored by our friends at Anchor. We have to read handles this uh -huh. time. So, not hiding. You're on Twitter, Instagram. Yes, 
Facebook, and TikTok, and YouTube. On Twitter, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. On Facebook, we are just MusicSpeaks podcast. On the TikTok, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And on YouTube, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. And uh, when we come back, we'll be moving into the 2000s to discuss uh -huh. Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle. So don't miss that, and we'll be right back. All right, and we are back, and we're going to talk about Spirited Away, which was written in 2001, and the piece we're going to talk about is One Summer's Day, and this was the first Studio Ghibli movie to win an Academy Award in the U.S., winning Best Animated Movie, uh -huh. um, and it's interesting, Hunter, just to let you know that Hayao Miyazaki did everything for this movie, the director of Studio Ghibli. He directed, he writed, he drew storyboards. He did not write the music because Joe Hisashi wrote the music. Uh -huh. And interestingly enough, I find that the although this movie is not realistic at all, I find that the small details made this movie relatable. Right. So... Your thoughts right away, my friend. Well, right away, I think we have our, our theme continues here with a piano opening. Oh, of course, of course. Of course. I would be disappointed at this point yeah. if we didn't have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it starts very small, right? And mm. builds sort mm -hmm. of as it builds mm -hmm. and grows as the scope builds, which mm -hmm. I think is, is probably something that's, that's very relatable to the movie, or uh, it, it's mirroring to the movie where sure. obviously her life is, is not small, but you know, it's her and her, her and her parents, right? So yes. them, this very mundane trip, and then obviously her world sort of opens up much oh, as the, the theme does. Yeah. And uh -huh. sort of yeah. in congruence with the rest of the movie, the theme of the piece really conveys, I think, a combination of both hope, uh, or it, it conveys sadness with a sense of hope, mm, which if that makes yeah. any sense. I think it does, yeah. Yeah, and, and just yeah. when you want it to burst, it just dials it right back. <laughs> He's so good at that, isn't yes. he? He is so good at that. And, and something I was going to add on to that is just how simple his music is. Uh -huh. I mean, chromatically, it's obviously a little challenging to discuss. Um, however, it's it's really kind of alluring in a way, you know? And we get some more of these compositional techniques of sequences. Uh, as I mentioned before, with chromaticism, I... I love this opening, uh, these opening few chords of la da da da. You know, it's it's so interesting and it's just so expansive. And you're like, what? <laughs> and you're like, you're kind of like, <laughs> where are you? You know, do you do you mind if I play it real quick? Because I, sure. I just I'm thinking about it and I, I want to listen to it and have our have our friends kind of take a listen to exactly what what he's saying because it's so interesting. I find it to be so engaging and so wonderful. And I love that this is just something that that he just kind of comes up with right away, which is spirited away. Let's see if I can try to find this. Here it is. Check this out, folks. 
was able to play a little bit of wild, you know, while I was down in Maryland. And when I was listening to that and I listened to the, the Breath of the Wild soundtrack and it reminded me of how open things are, you know? Uh-huh. And almost like things were just happening in that moment, you know? Very and it just so. felt like you didn't... It just felt like you didn't really need to understand what was happening. You just had to just kind of just look at nature, you know? And the title of the song is uh, One Summer's Day. And it just adds to this very sort of very soft, quiet, but almost simple kind of feeling of, you know, you don't really know how to sort of react to that, but you don't need to react to it because it just it's just very simple and, and you understand that exactly what he's trying to do is just sort of set the scene you know of this summer day uh-huh. you know of, of her moving to this new place you know and kind of going away and uh she's definitely in for a big surprise uh <laughs> as she as she <laughs> as she moves along in the in the beginning of this movie i won't give anything away um but it's definitely worth watching and something else i wanted to mention about this movie was um and we might even talked about this with um with some of box music maybe um why do we like simple why what we 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 as musicians sometimes we want the extremities of like really crazy music like maybe i do i don't know your taste my friend um but i do feel like sometimes i i I want those moments but then we listen to something like this and then we're like huh you know, music can be a lot less than we think it is. Sometimes it can actually really surprise us in really simple ways. What do you mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, I think that it's definitely you know to make something, uh, or or rather, the choice to make something simple is often one that's mm-hmm. born out of a a desire for relatability, right? So mm, the yeah. the non musician might not appreciate crazy complexity you know i don't know how many non-musicians are really uh sitting down to enjoy some of stravinsky's more unusual stuff or you know uh, as i I forced you to do (laughs) and (laughs) it was something but (laughs) you know what i mean like we look at those from an academic standpoint and we we see the the complexity and the 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 written uh, academic portion of it but the simplicity is something that anyone understands. You know what I mean? It, it, it can be something that it's written in a way where the beauty it comes out because it's inherently beautiful. You know what I mean? Not because we see the beauty in the composition, but because the sound of it or the, um, the, the writing of it, it comes across very obviously beautiful. And if it's easy to understand, I think people are more inclined to be a part of it. They're more inclined to want to believe in it. And it's also representative, Mm -hmm. right? So the main character again is a kid and that I think, you know, the, the kid, not that kids are simple in that sense, but uh, because they're probably the most complex beings on this planet, but in the sense of like almost very linear thinking and, you know, she has problems that seem overwhelming. So while she herself is, is not as complex, I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's very representative. So I think that's one thing that really it compels us to to feel for it. Sure. Yeah. And it almost makes us, as we were mentioning, with kind of relatability. Uh-huh. Uh, it's hard to sometimes relate to something that's fan- 
you know, fantasy. Right. So it's, it's sometimes hard for us to understand, but I feel like Kasashi, I feel like music is able to make us understand things that might, we might not understand ourselves within, you know, the scope of reality. So right. I feel like Kasashi does a really great job of taking out the impossible and putting in the predictable or putting in the relatable aspects of, you know, music. Right, because like you said, you know, this is obviously an uber fantasy mm -hmm. film, and so <laughs> how might one you definitely say that? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. So it might be just oh, a min minor understatement. Little, little minor understatement. Yeah, but for the main character, you know, how would we might not know how she would feel in this moment because we would never experience the same thing. But uh -huh. the music conveys it to us in a very easy to understand way, where we mm -hmm. are able to feel what she's feeling through the music, and then it helps us understand her situation more. Exactly. Yeah. I I totally understand. And it almost feels like it's just something that we can kind of latch on to understand. Yeah. Just, it, it, it all, and it, as I mentioned earlier, it just showcases slow and beautiful playing, which in the music world is underrated. A lot mm -hmm. of us want faster, better, you know, louder, intense, you know, music, but sometimes we can really take credit for just really enjoying soft and beautiful playing as listeners. Because I think it really showcases that in his writing. And I think that's really important with this with this piece. Um, I didn't really have much to say musically about this because I think it was just very simple. And I mm -hmm. think that's just something that he was just going for within the movie. Um, do you have anything else on this, my friend, before we move to Howl's Moving Castle? No, just that the, the cellos provide movement at the end, um, mm -hmm. which really, I think, propels it forward in a, in a more subtle way, which I think is very nice. Right, absolutely. And I want to move to the last one of our selections that was created and debuted in uh, 2004, which is Howl's Moving Castle. And the theme that we're going to talk about, which I think I'm really excited to talk about, because this one is... This one is breathtaking. Um, one of my more one of my favorite of, of his works, which is Merry Go Round of Life. Um, and Hunter, as I as I like to like to mention with uh, just like Porco Rosso, how Michael Keaton, I would say Michael Keaton, you're my favorite Porco Rosso, <laughs> and nothing else. Billy Crystal is in this movie and plays Calcifer, and I would say the same exact thing to him. <laughs> i'm kidding he he is really really incredible in this movie um also they have some incredible actors maybe you might have not known him uh christian bale i'm not really mm -hmm. sure if you know who that is uh minor you know stage actor small no, celebrity S small celebrity christian bale um and it was interesting that it's interesting that he was offered to play any role in this movie but he decided to play howell in this movie Really? Um, and interestingly enough, um, before the book became a movie, uh, it was written by the author Diana Wine Jones. And Hunter, what instrument do we start with? You know, I'm just not sure, but I think <laughs> it might be piano. That's right. Piano is right. Um, it, it is so beautiful. Um, I would like harmonic. to do. Jazz harmonics in this are just very key and really important because uh, we talk about sequences, we talk about um, themes and developing themes. Um, 
I think uh, it's more. It's I think it gets more on the memorable side because it feels like. And interestingly enough, that this this is the only real theme we get in the movie, and that it changes throughout the movie, and so we understand that this is kind of like how these characters are living. And then I would like to take a second to just kind of discuss the title because I, I actually I think it's really important because the title of this composition is called The Merry-Go-Round of Life. And I wrote, what a metaphor with an exclamation point. <laughs> what does that mean? What do, you, what do you think that means? Well, the you know, life has frequently been described as... You know that we've heard the circle of life. We've heard, and a merry-go-round obviously is a, a amusement park ride or a carnival ride that spins in a circle and has music playing. Which, conveniently enough, you know that's the name of the piece. Um, and often the music that's played on merry-go-rounds are waltzes or or pieces in three-four. And this piece is in fact. A waltz and it is in three four right and, and I, I recognize the talent of the creators of this writing because something that i really enjoy is where have you heard the word sweeping before oh yes <laughs> in this in this conversation many times before he, he he kind of enjoys this sweeping sound of well, you know, we've talked like, about the relatability, the the intrinsic mm -hmm. motion mm -hmm. that comes with compound meter. Um, mm -hmm. It compels you to move. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really true. And I, I, I love that this is just something that's just kind of, that gives, you know, something. And I, I wrote that maybe the theme of our lives is living in a waltz. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and then interestingly enough, the waltz becomes a jig, you know, mm -hmm. it kind of feels in this two feel and then it comes back to And I just I just love how he doesn't have anything else but strings and piano in this piece It doesn't need to have any other instruments. It feels like it's just it's overstating exactly what what he's going for and um, And I think I think this melody is probably brilliant you know probably it, it just i think it's probably brilliant i think it, it it just adds to a lot of really great creative energy around sort of playing around with liltingness and kind of like this sort of like waltz and i i just kind of really enjoy this sort of very slow feel of of nature and how expressive and expansive it can become mm -hmm. yeah yeah well something you know it, it's always you know, waltzes to me mm -hmm. always, and, and we said this before. It, it, it's a very, it's a dance. Uh, a, a waltz is obviously a dance, and dance implies motion, and motion is is compelling for us as humans. It's something we relate to, and um, whenever I hear it, especially in a mm -hmm. score, and especially sure. uh, sweeping, you know, a sweeping score that we have like this. Um, mm -hmm it really is like it's free you know what i mean and a lot of these studio ghibli films the scenery is so it's so vast right it's always mm -hmm. these you know broad landscapes or high skies 
Um, and a great way to portray that this freedom and this openness is through something compelling like a waltz where the main character is clearly feeling like the world is very large and open. Yeah. And that ending, woof. It yeah. just, it, it is so breathtaking. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it doesn't feel like it ends, but that's just the metaphor of the song. Yeah. Right. And given that a waltz and, or given that the, merry-go-round right a merry-go-round doesn't really end right i mean it's it's just uh -huh. oh it's around it's and around and around yeah it's a circle and i think that that can be related to a lot of different ideas of what life is like and kind of gives you a almost maybe not the greatest feeling of moral ambiguity in the whole world but <laughs> you know i'm not sure exactly how you're supposed to feel about that but however i think he does a really great job with this movie and music is brilliant and Joe Hisashi, if you are listening to this podcast, I am absolutely blessed that you were able to find us. But this music is really incredible, and I'm so glad to talk about it, and I want to talk about it more. Uh, maybe we'll do another series of his music another time. Um, so I'm so glad to share that with you, Hunter, and uh -huh. share that with our listeners, and hopefully they can check out his music. And Hunter will definitely post those links of ours from there into the podcast. So please go check that out. And that's the end of this one, and we will see you next time. So take care. Thank you very much, Joe Hisashi, for your brilliant and effective musical mind. Next time, we'll talk to another brilliant and beautiful mind, hip-hop star Brandon Law. My name is Hunter Sagona, and he is Sean Rimkunis. And remember to keep listening to what you love.